If you're a founder building a company, you're going to eventually have to start hiring executives to help you scale. The people you bring into your leadership team can make or break your startup. I'm Nigel Robinson with Build Talent, and in each episode, we'll be speaking with a founder or expert as we discuss the art and science of hiring leaders, why it matters, and how you can keep up. Welcome to the Gradients Podcast. Okay, so I appreciate you taking your time out to join us here on the show. We're still kind of taking our beginning strides. So I appreciate you being here with us. For sure, man. Yeah, it's a fun topic to talk about. It's uh, Hiring is definitely the hardest thing in building and running a company. All the founder friends I have, like my own journey, it's it's the hardest thing. So we agree. We agree. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll quickly introduce you. We could get going. So I'm here with Evan Walden, the CEO and co-founder of Getro, that is essentially accelerating hiring by building networks, a job platform that powers the top VC and PE funds, accelerators, membership organizations. Founded over five years ago. Not his first founder journey is here with us to share a little bit more about this world of hiring, how he got started and the found, what the founder's life on that side of the fence looks like. So I guess to start us off, your mission is to help people reveal the hidden potential inside their networks and do the work they love. How did you decide to start building a business around this in particular? <laughs> yeah. My first job out of college was actually selling pesticides, literally for Dow Chemical. <laughs> and I had a story of climbing the corporate ranks and making a really big impact and thought like, wow, corporations, they have a huge impact in the world. Maybe I kind of climb up and contribute somehow. And within the first year, it was like, okay, that's not really how this works. I'm going to be in the field forever. I don't really care about the mission of this company. And so I started asking my friends, like, what are you guys doing? Trying to find inspiration. And everyone basically said, work's supposed to suck. Deal with it. And to me, I was like, whoa, we're in our 20s. This is terrible. And really felt that pain from a lot of the smartest folks I knew. And that led me to eventually quitting that job and starting my first business, which was kind of morphed into a recruiting company. And we actually had a very niche focus on social impact. So we worked with nonprofits and social enterprises and helped them find talent and helped a lot of people transition out of different scenarios, a lot of times corporate life into something that they felt more connected to from a mission standpoint. This is around 2011. And we built this huge community. It's probably about 50,000 people in the community that we had built, basically saying, Hey, if you guys find a job that's really aligned with my values, I'll totally leave what I'm doing right now. Otherwise, I'm not actively looking. So it's this kind of passive community of people who are open to opportunities. And we noticed that as a recruiting company, we found a lot of talent through that community and through other communities, kind of like the one we had built. That's where we were sourcing a lot of talent from. And so we started to get curious about how we could potentially scale that as we learned that actually a lot of our connections come from these introductions through curated networks and communities that we build, but there really wasn't that many software tools. Like people were using LinkedIn groups or Facebook things that were absolutely not designed to facilitate introductions within communities. So that kind of kicked us down the, the journey. And I ended up transitioning out of that company. We ended up selling it to another recruiting agency. And one of my co-founders there joined. And that's how Getro got started. Wow. I love that. The idea of building a community around shared purpose. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think we talked to a founder last week who was talking about how your vibe attracts your tribe. Yeah. 
It's finding the people that are really aligned with your vision, with your values. I think that will always trump shared interests. That's amazing. 50,000 people is non-trivial to, to scale <laughs> that idea, I think. And so you mentioned this is the journey of how you actually found your co-founder too, or, yeah. or that was your original co-founder. What was it like recruiting that person? And what was going on kind of, what was, you know, was it a lot of selling or yeah. how did you decide, all right, let's jump in this boat together? So Raul, Raul Sanarciso is my co-founder of Getro. We met in 2010 through mutual friends. And actually he ended up moving into, well, we ended up together moving into a house of entrepreneurs in Boulder. So it was kind of like Launch House, which is these like startup houses that are getting more popular now, which is super cool. But this was kind of like the prehistoric version of something like that. Where we all like, hey, we're working on startups. And why would we find our roommates on Craigslist when we could just live with people who we really like and were inspired by and, and who want to build together? So Raul was working on his own startup at that time. We were just starting my last company. And so we just we were close friends and built a friendship. And Raul had helped us with a few things kind of like on the technical side of that business at the beginning. So we had a really close friendship. And then as that company continued to evolve and we started thinking more about technology, we kind of looped Raul into that conversation. And he ended up deciding to join that company as our CTO, kind of like a late co-founder. And so when we were both kind of talking about that vision, we ended up deciding together to transition out of the company and uh-huh. and start this one. Yeah. You guys were like a DIY accelerator, like the accelerator. <laughs> yeah. It's funny too, because there's this whole yeah. like mythology of like, oh, we started in a small garage. It's like literally a bunch of entrepreneurs in a house just trying to make just in a house in Boulder, man. What's funny, we were one of the guys who really had the guy who really had the vision for this, Cesar Gonzalez at that time, he had been working at an accelerator in Boulder that was modeled after Techstars called the Unreasonable Institute. And he basically noticed that when folks go through an accelerator, you end up being really tight-knit with your cohort and it feels great and everything's super exciting, moving really fast. And then the accelerator ends and you fall off a cliff of energy and it can be really lonely. And it's like, wait, where are all my people? And I just go back to normal life now. And a lot of people end up feeling depressed. And so that's something that no one really talks about, but That happened to a lot of folks that were going through, even just in our cohort of, I think there were 11 companies, 11 or 12 companies. So he had noticed that and Accelerate, he was working for him was kind of like, why do we all have to go home after this experience? Why not just keep it going and actually live with each other and support each other? Yeah. Yeah. Go back to the idea of community. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. The energy cliff. Yeah. Because founders, that's a special kind of optimism. Oh, yeah. Definitely. It's a special kind of gusto. I can totally imagine just like a vacuum. And the pace is, I mean, at least with Techstars, you you end up working together every day in the cohort we went through in an office. So the pace is just so fast. And it's not necessarily sustainable to be doing that all the time. And so you just end up kind of hitting this wall. Yeah. You guys are really in there in the trenches with each other, ultimately. Right. So, okay. So you find your co-founder, you're out of the accelerator. You've started this journey together. What happens next as far as building your early team? We kind of touched on this idea of the Bible Traction tribe. Like, how did you start surrounding yourself with the rest of the cast to like make this thing happen? And what was yeah. the things that you were indexing on with these hires? Like, what was most important about these hires? Yeah, our first three hires were super part time. So we went when we left my last company to start this company. We were working on the idea for a few months and we ended up joining the Techstars Accelerator. And so during that time, that was really the first 
funding into the business and allowed us to start thinking about who we wanted to hire. We had already known two people that Raul had worked really closely with in his past, and they were actually based in Spain. And they were kind of running their own business. They had a, a development shop. And so we just hired them for some hours every week, not full-time. And then as the company grew and we brought on more revenue, we were able to hire them for more and more time until eventually they actually ramped down and shut down their agency and joined the team full-time. But I don't think that that happened for at least a year or maybe even more from when we first started working with them. And then the third hire was someone named Trey, still on the team. And she was like a total generalist Swiss army knife, could kind of jump into anything and just take it really high energy, really optimistic. And she was also running her own business. And we did the same thing with her. So it was an interesting way for us as a kind of a bootstrap company. I mean, we raised 120,000 from Techstars, but then coming out of Techstars, we had a product, we started selling it and we decided to bootstrap the business. And so we didn't have millions of dollars in venture capital to go hire people full-time. And so this allowed us to scale up the team over time based on the resources we had. And it was a, a pretty good model. That's awesome. It's like you're like kind of slowly reeling them in. It's not like, oh, yeah. out the gate, great benefits <laughs> and free lunches. It's like, right. it's almost like a really extended, I won't call it maybe an interview, but like the working relationship got a chance to evolve kind of slowly yeah. before you're able to then kind of make the jump. I do, I think that's important to note for the difference between bootstrapping a company versus like, hey, I have millions. Let me just go hire people. Totally. And the, I'll say the pace is different too. Like if you, raise millions of dollars and you want to be moving really fast, it's hard to do that with a couple people part-time. So taking that path, I'd probably advise entrepreneurs to hire people full-time. But the caveat there is that if you don't necessarily know what you want to do and what you're building, more people typically won't solve that problem. (laughs) So clarity of your vision, clarity of the customer problem and the solution that you feel like you validated with the customer Without that, it's like it's just more voices at the table trying to figure it out. So I, I like the idea of keeping things fairly small until you feel like you have that traction and clarity yeah. on the customer problem and what you want to solve, and then starting to scale up the team post validation there. Yeah, I like that idea too. Of like people talk a lot about product market fit as like another checkpoint in the company, but even the clarity of vision mm-hmm. at the beginning to even know what you're building and why and who for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. And this kind of leads us to a little bit about Getro because the whole thing is like your true network, the warm referrals, which yeah. that's how like you even bootstrapped. It was kind of this referral network, this true advocate network. Mm-hmm. Tell us about what that means to you of leveraging a company's true network of advocates. Yeah. So the the thing that I think most people don't think about when they're thinking like, what resources do I have available to me as a company? It's not just your full-time employees. You can think of it almost like an onion where the, the first core layer of the onion is like your full-time team members and founders. And then you start to go outside the onion and maybe the next layer is like investors. So they are financially invested in the company. If you succeed, they succeed. So they have an interest in helping. And then maybe it's advisors who have some kind of equity. And as you keep going out of the onion, it doesn't just stop there. You end up getting out to maybe your customers who want you to succeed because they love your product or your audience through social media or just people who really resonate with your mission and the vision of the company. People are excited and want to help you. And the first degree connections of any of those people, because there's what we've noticed is that introductions as a method of getting something, requesting a warm intro, 
is super effective at the early stage versus just going cold. So for us, when we started and launched our first product out of Techstars, the first 30 customers came through warm introductions from people that we met in Techstars. So we basically... We actually did something pretty interesting, which I've, I've not seen many folks do, but I think it's really effective. We got all our customer list, our target customer list of you know, 1,000 of the top funds. And we got a list of all the partners at those funds. And then we looked on LinkedIn to see what connections we had to those partners. And we constructed this whole Excel spreadsheet basically and just did an email campaign asking for warm introductions. And that ended up converting quite well. And a lot of those folks we had met through Techstars who were mentors and they were saying, Hey, how can I help? Right. And people really do want to help, but they're also very busy <laughs> and like they want to help if it's easy. Yeah. It's like, how can I help parentheses if it's really easy? Yeah. So you, can make it, like, you can make it easy for them by being super specific, right. by sending a forwardable email like, Hey, what's up, Nigel? This is like the person I want to meet. I noticed you're connected. Here's a little bit about Getro. Like, we really appreciate it. And all you have to do is click forward. This guy looks great. Do you want to meet him? Yes, no. And that's just, it's almost no work on your part, assuming you know the person. So we've seen that to be super successful with sales, with fundraising, with hiring. And I think it's a, we're trying to build tools now with Getro to make this easier for founders and easier for investors who are trying to help their founders because there is a lot of friction in the introduction process, but it's a great way to to solve problems and find opportunities. Yeah. I I mean, because I guess in some ways, they say the rule of sales, make it easy on the customer to buy. Mm-hmm. I can totally see that. Like just even giving them the template. All right, send this. Totally. You know, they don't even have to think of what to say. Right. And then extending that even more like, all right, how do I make it even easier on myself to ask them to make it easy on them? And I can totally see kind of the get your workflow, like how you work. Right. You can imagine all the points of friction in that whole journey of right. asking for an intro. Yeah. Wow. And so now the company is over about, you're about 30, a little bit over 30. Is that right? Yeah, we have 25 people full-time and yeah, five or six people part-time as well. What has been the biggest people-related lesson that, that you've gotten from building to this point? Mm. You're at this point now where you have the functioning product, you know that it works. Yeah. One of the most interesting things and also the most frustrating things about startups is that you have these points in the company's growth where everything breaks. Like The systems are designed for the moment the company's in. But as the company grows and changes, the systems need to be redesigned for the moment the company is in at that time. So the systems you have when you're five people and you can just talk to each other all day and figure things out are totally different than when you're 10, 15 people are different than when you're 30 to 50 people. And I've never run a company that's bigger than Getro. But when I talk to folks who I'm connected to, founder friends, investors, like that keeps happening <laughs> is what I hear. Yeah. So yeah, I think a big lesson is not getting too married to the systems that you're using and being open to observing friction points and knowing, okay, when is the time to stick with the system and when is the time to actually break it and redesign it? Salaries, I think, is a great concrete example of that around hiring, where in the early stage, we had no money. We were a bootstrap company. We were all pretty much paying the same amount of money to everyone. And then as the company grew... We started competing with talent in the market who had other roles. We needed to be more competitive with our offers. We also wanted to be really fair across the whole team because inclusivity is a big value of ours. And we've learned a lot about people negotiate differently in hiring situations and that can lead to unfair outcomes. And so we wanted to really design a clear system that was very crisp around like 
you're this function at this level in this region, this is how much you make. And we designed this whole system and it was beautiful and worked really well for our team at that time. And now as we're continuing to grow and get later stages of company, we're noticing that mm-hmm. there's some breaking points in that system. So we're yeah. getting ready to raise our Series A and I'm sure we're going to be... We're already talking about redesigning that system post-Series A because that's how it is. Yeah, yeah. You already see the cracks starting to form. You already see the cracks, yeah. And it's like... Like uh, scaling challenges ahead. <laughs> yeah. You gotta. You just got to like deal with that pain. Like nothing's ever going to be perfect. So the question is not like, is this perfect? The question is, is this good enough for right now? Can this get us to the next stage and to the next system of goals that we have? Absolutely. And I think even to that point, you're dealing with different hiring challenges, depending on your scale, like what you're able to attract at seed at series A and kind of the, the talent war that you get to be a part of. I'm sure these companies that hit like growth stage and you start going at it with Google for their talent or something like <laughs> totally different. System. Yeah, it's a great point. Like I think in our stage right now, I would say we're late stage seed. And it's tough to be in this stage from a hiring standpoint because you're a little too big to have a really competitive equity offer, but you're not big enough to be hitting the market rates for post Series A. Right. So it's like this kind of gap where it's really important, I think, to tap into your networks because finding it's like to most people we're just a random startup right yeah and so you have to kind of like get over that hump to build at least enough trust to have a conversation and then share the context of what's happening and what the mission is and getting out in front of enough people ultimately it's a numbers game to find people who really resonate with you it's hard to tell that from the outside from a linkedin profile from a resume so getting out there yeah absolutely some of the most critical things or cannot be read in a LinkedIn uh, resume. It's like, you never know. And that trust factor, absolutely. You need high trust for anybody to even step into an interview process at this stage. I guess to that point, you know, you mentioned the systems and kind of developing that trust and going out there. We talked a little bit about this idea of the funnel. Yeah. How has your funnel developed? And what are, I guess, the problems that you see out there or that you've run into in constructing a funnel that works, something that creates trust and spits out clarity and conviction at the other side. Yeah, there's a really interesting framework that I think is... It formed my understanding of what a hiring funnel really should look like. Uh, It comes from a book called Who. It's like the best hiring book I've ever read. I recommend it to all founders, no matter what stage you're at, because it's just a really important way to frame... Nobody really teaches hiring. You know, you're not going to learn hiring in school, right? And so, just founders come in totally cold, and it's arguably the most important thing that they need to do. So, there's just a lot of irony there. But this book's amazing. It's by uh, Jeff Street and Smart. I forget the other guy's first name, but they talk about a few stages. So, the first stage is scoping. So, in the scoping stage, you want to figure out what actually do we need. Where are the pressure points in the company? What are the responsibilities? The key responsibilities, like top two or three, that we need in this person. Who's going to be managing them? Who's going to be working directly with them? What goals do we have for them in 30, 60, 90 days out? And that becomes the job description. But through that process, it's very similar to marketing in that you want to think about who is your ideal candidate profile? Where are they right now? What are their problems? Like, What are they thinking about every day? What are their ambitions? And really getting yourself into the mindset of that candidate and writing directly to them in the same way that you do copywriting on the website or in sales collateral. It's like the same. There's so many analogies to sales and hiring, actually. So the scoping is the first, getting that really, really right. The second is sourcing. 
So you're taking that persona, you're thinking about, okay, if I was this person, where would they be? Mm-hmm. Like a great exercise I love to do is creating that persona and then finding a few people in your network who fit that persona, even if they're, you know, they're not looking or they would never really work for you, wouldn't make sense. Maybe earlier in their career, they were this persona, or maybe they are now. And just asking them, like, what do you think about this role description? What red flags do you have? What's missing? Do you have any friends who might be interested in this? Because people tend to know other people who are similar to them, right? They probably have networks of people similar. So it's a great way to get referrals. And so just trying to get that role description out to the places where you think that person is spending time. And then the next is screening. So you're going to start getting applicants in if you're doing that sourcing job well. So in screening, you're trying to spend as little amount of time as possible getting to a point where you've kind of cleared all the red flags. So that might look like a 15-minute conversation. We use screener questions instead of a cover letter. So just saying like two or three questions that really get at the core material of the role and just try to illuminate deal breakers for both sides, right? Like for example, if you have a sales role and you say, what evidence do you have that you could hit a sales goal of X within your first year? And someone reads that question, they're like, Oh shit. Uh, actually, I've never done sales before. So I don't have any evidence. Like, yeah. this is not going to work for me. Yeah. So they can, you can help people filter out too, right? Yeah. We also use trial projects. So after that screening call, we'll typically do a quick screening call and then a call with the hiring manager. And if that call goes well, we'll do a trial project. And that's three to five hours of time designed around something really specific, a piece of work that that person can do that we can collaborate on with them. And that's role specific. So it's not like, one trial project for every role for the engineering team, totally different than for an ops role, for example. And then selection is the fourth. So now you have some folks, you've done some screening, you, these folks are pretty good. We'll typically run a meeting with our team. So the hiring manager, maybe myself and someone else at the company, just to have a discussion around how those conversations went, what were the red flags, reference checks would happen at this stage. And then the fifth is sales. And sales is something that I think people don't really think about, but that kind of is like a thread through the whole process. Because I my theory is like you want to design the process for your ideal candidate. Mm-hmm. So through the whole process, you want to be selling why is the company a place that they might want to work? What's the team like? Being really clear about the mission and the vision. But just thinking in the back of your mind, like this is a bit and obviously being honest and candid, but thinking about the fact that yeah, you're trying to paint a clear picture of this opportunity. Yeah, I mean, if you misrepresent the opportunity, it's eventually going to come to light. Like we've seen that in some instances where you paint this rosy picture, person walks in, the house is on fire. It's like, (laughs) that's not the way to start a relationship. I think you, you said something really important at the beginning of the process is just like the clarity of what is this person's worldview? Mm -hmm. And I feel like a lot of people, or we talk to a lot of founders who just have this general idea of a leader, but they haven't really got the high resolution idea of it. Like they can't really see the more granular elements that they're asking for in terms of that perspective. And so, yeah, getting the clarity around that. And I liked what you said too, about even asking people that you know, who are like this to read it. Mm -hmm. I think there's something in that that's, I think a lot of people could take some good words from. There's a lot of parallels with product as well. So the idea of customer discovery of really getting in and understanding what is this customer's day-to-day life like? What are their pain points? Where are they feeling pressure? How do they make decisions? Wow. And using that as a way to craft the product, like 
way your company, like this job opportunity is the product and the customer is the candidate who's yeah. buying it, right? And then they come into your company and that continues to be true. Yeah. You continue to have to make sure that the product of your, you know, the work opportunity is is a fit for the person who's showing up every day into it. And so that's, I think about internal operations in a lot of cases in that way. It's like the customer is the people who are yes. working on the team. And that's true of folks who are getting hired as well. Absolutely. The candidate is the customer in this sense. Selling that vision, the opportunity, you're the soul of the company in some regard. How has operating in a remote world affected this? Because the first company you founded was pre-COVID. And I'm sure that had its own kind of obstacle course. Now in this post-COVID world, still trying to maintain high integrity, high trust. Yeah. How has that changed either from a funnel perspective or the path to finding the right talent? How has that affected you? Yeah. So my first company, we were mostly co-located and then we had kind of bouts of being remote or we had different people who were working remote at different times. And the landscape at that time was so different. The tools were horrible. I mean, we'd have... You'd be on the phone for audio. You'd be on Google Hangout or Skype for video. It's just... It was kind of a disaster. Yeah, that's pre-Zoom even. Um, yeah. Oh yeah, definitely pre-Zoom. And then when we started Getro, we actually were remote from day one. So Raul and I, we traveled a lot together. So we kind of were co-located, but most of the team members were in different places. We had someone in South Africa, two people in Spain. And as we grew, I mean, now we have people in nine different countries. So we've continued to be remote. And I think post pre-COVID, I'd say like two of the biggest things that have shifted to now, the tools are a lot better, which is kind of nice. We were hacking a lot of things together early on and tools like Notion or Coda, Airtable, they're just given a lot of power to people who are having to build their own systems. Yeah. Zoom has obviously gotten a lot better. Slack has really come up during that time. So these are things like... We're speaking our language right now. <laughs> yeah. You're like, how would you even imagine working without these tools? Like, yeah, that was, none of this stuff existed. That we've created a lot of best practices there. I think also the talent market has really shifted. And there's some big things happening now that no one's really... People are talking about the pain of it, but they're not necessarily highlighting how the most innovative companies are solving it. So we're thinking a lot about this. For example, like before COVID, we were hiring folks internationally and the salary requirements were very different all around the world. So we had to think about what does cost of living look like all these different countries and how do we even figure that out? Right. So we kind of best, right? Yeah, where do you even start? Yeah. And now, now we're seeing people just totally dropping cost of living and something we're considering doing because the reality is like the best people could live anywhere and they're not competing with other jobs in their region. They're competing with like other folks globally, right? The global remote talent market, you could get a job anywhere. So as a remote employer, you need to be conscious of that. And so we're kind of thinking a lot about that. And there are other things like there's a lot of PEO companies, professional employment organization companies that have been scaling like deal or remote, helping you just make it easier to facilitate the hiring process of folks who aren't in your home country. (laughs) There's probably going to be a big wave of like legal confusion and tax confusion. It seems like a lot of people are just going rogue right now. So I mean, when you were saying it, you you have a 24-7 global team. And that was what I was saying. I was like, oh man, the taxes, the benefits system, the benefits, like offering someone medical benefits globally, like as a small startup. Wow. Yeah. I mean, for that, for example, like we do have health insurance in the US and we pay 75% of the health insurance for people 
in the US and for folks globally, we have like a health benefit. So we just give cash. And yeah, like it'd be very hard for us to figure out how to pay health insurance for people in nine different countries. So we've had to find ways of <laughs> trying to kind of create something that's equitable, right? And it's not going to be perfect, but we have a co-working benefit as well that we just pay every month. So we've attempted some things like that. And I think as we grow, we will lean into that a lot more because in a way, like I think the more you can empower each individual person to be in a great place every day, removing the friction of them having to focus on work, the more competitive you can be as an employer. And some of those things don't actually cost a lot of money, but they really change the quality of life for person. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the the flip side of this, there's like, all right, there's the salary benefits, finding different functions in the global talent market. And then there's the culture that it creates at your company. Mm -hmm. What was kind of your thesis for the culture of Getro? And maybe how has the remote hiring kind of impacted? How do you kind of navigate that of building a coherent, cohesive, harmonious company culture? Yeah. Well, from the beginning, we were we had an intention to be fully remote. And I mean, that was we left Techstars, graduated Techstars in 2017. So we had been growing the company remotely for years before COVID. We traveled to each other before COVID. So that was something that had to change. We do quarterly team summits and usually at least once a year that would be in person. So that's that has been a bummer to not. There's multiple team members who I've never met in person, which is just kind of a strange thing. Yeah. Definitely because of COVID. I think we've had to move even more async first in work. So we use Loom, for example, as a tool. Often we record a lot of our calls on Grain, which is another tool where you can just kind of send clips from a call and watch on 2X. We do a lot of voice notes, listening on 2X just to kind of rip through it, but trying to give each other as much context as we can without having to have synchronous calls. Because it also is hard across different time zones, right? Someone might be asleep when you are working. And so you need to find ways of giving them context. And I think documentation is also something as we scale, we're noticing is just super important to bake into the culture. And it's a tough thing. I mean, it can be really boring to write down every single thing you're doing, right? So finding ways of just encouraging each other to do that. I love the idea of like the voice memos. Like I'm thinking of waking up to the content. Yeah, totally. Hey, you missed this meeting. Here's what you're talking yeah. about. Here's your exercise. Right. <laughs> it's funny because, you know, like somebody would be in the room overhearing a 2X voice note. It's just like, I'm just listening to Alvin and the Chipmunks do yeah. remote work, you know? <laughs> it's very funny. Absolutely. Okay. And then there's this concept too that people, there's like social engineering. And then there's like hmm. the organization as the organism and kind of just letting it naturally evolve. Where do you stand when it comes to the idea of your culture? And I guess, hmm. how much of it do you think can be structured versus how much is it just kind of you hire them in and you just let them kind of blossom? Like, Yeah, I think there are... It's good to create guardrails around the culture and also encouraging that people are taking ownership of that culture and really stepping in and holding each other accountable. But having artifacts, having cultural moments like a certain meeting. For example, we have a gratitude channel on our Slack. We use an app called Hey Taco, where we can like give each other tacos as kind of like a high five, kudos, like thanks for doing that. So those little things and just encouraging folks to do that. So when someone new comes onto the team, one of the first things they'll see is our gratitude channel. And they'll see in the beginning of our all hands, we start with gratitude and things that have gone well and everyone gets to share something. So 
to kind of take our core values, which are really the guardrails of your culture, and think about like, how does this literally manifest itself in the company? And are there things we can do, whether it's like an event or a certain standing call or a document or a tool that we use that helps people live into that value, makes it almost easier to live into that value than not. And I think the values create the guardrails for the culture and then just trying to encourage people to own it and empowering people. And I mentioned Ture earlier in our call, our conversation. She's someone who's been at the company for a long time. She's really had a big hand in the culture and does things like design our summits. And just she's thinking about that. And so empowering employees are just kind of trying to encourage folks beyond just the founders to be thinking about it. Because it's like, hey, it's everyone's culture, right? Wow. And everyone can have a really... Anyone can have a big impact on the culture, both positive and negative. So... Absolutely. Absolutely. Just making that... Yeah, giving permission on that, I think is really important. Yeah, we're all stewards of the culture kind of thing. And yeah. Yeah, it's a great word for it. Giving people the ownership of that. I can see too, like the guardrails. If you're... If I'm a candidate interviewing it kind of gives me a chance to opt in. Does this seem like a culture that resonates with my own values? How do you think about that in terms of where it sits in the funnel? Is that something that you're kind of, yeah, yeah, how do you screen for that at the beginning, then the middle to the close? Like, how do you think about building that into the process? Yeah, I mean, just really tactically, we'll typically have interview questions and different people on the team who are responsible for different interviews through the funnel. And we'll actually create questions that are designed to elicit a response that is focused on a particular value Mm. and then just give it to one of the screeners. So like if gratitude is one of our values, inclusivity is one of our values, then maybe I'll ask a question that's really focused on inclusiveness and how someone has showed up in an environment that maybe was less inclusive. How do they handle that? Or like, what does inclusivity mean to them? Or just trying to design questions that are really focused on each value. And might not be every single value because sometimes you just don't have time to do that. But so there's a very tactical way to do it. And then also just having that in the back of the mind as you're hearing the candidate speak, as they're telling stories, and then you know saying, Hey, I had a conversation with this candidate, yada, yada, yada. And at this one point, I just don't really know if they resonate with this value or if they're a fit. Can you make sure and ask a question about that later on in the interview process just to like uncover that and really get some surface area around this value fit? So I think collaboration through the funnel of, of a candidate process is really important because you can... 30 minutes, it's not enough time. An hour even is not enough time to ask a thousand questions. So you got to kind of like tee up the next person who's going to be doing that interview and cover the things that you were concerned about or you just didn't have time to ask. Yeah, I love that idea of having it kind of in the foreground and the background, like right. listening from your values perspective and priming and kind of soliciting those questions. There's another really interesting concept around culture ad that people talk about. And I think like there's a lot of content out there about this, but my philosophy, the philosophy I resonate the most with is that your values should not be aspirational. They should be kind of accurate to where the company is. Mm -hmm. And so at any given point, your values should be an expression of the reality of the company. And there's accountability and there's systems and process trying to continue to help people live into those values. If there are new things that you're noticing that you want to bring into the company that you don't have, because every value is a polarity with other things, right? It's choices that you're making. Hiring someone who can help the company kind of balance out something that it might be overvaluing 
can be really important as a culture add. And even if that creates maybe a little bit of tension, a lot of times that's healthy tension because as a company, you're always trying to balance different things, right? Like privacy and openness. Like those are both good things, but if you're only doing one and not the other, then you're not going to be in a good spot, right? So there's a balancing act. I absolutely agree. That's one of the things we try and get founders to think about when we partner. It's like, what is your culture today? What would you want this executive to bring into your culture? Because they're going to make a splash. They are undoubtedly going to shift your culture. They're going to hire your next 50, 100, 200 people. And so getting to think about the culture trajectory from that perspective, I think that's key. Now that you have had a couple of founder journeys now, what advice would you give to your younger founder self? If you can go back and, and tell the young Evan and help prepare him for these founder exploits, what would you tell them? I think the time spent with customers has been the most valuable time that I've spent as an entrepreneur. So I would always tell every like it's almost like no matter who you are, no matter what you're doing, you could probably be spending more time with customers because it is can be hard to just logistically set those things up and you kind of forget about it. You make a lot of assumptions. So I would say that's one. The second would be, especially in my younger days, I was constantly comparing myself to other entrepreneurs, other companies, thinking about competitors. And I don't think that really served me. Like I think the the truth is that if I just kind of played my game and told our story, I had what I needed in moments when I really didn't think that I did. And I played smaller than I could have because I just wasn't confident that we had what we needed. And so there's this concept of like self-rejection where like you don't you don't let someone reject you. You just reject yourself. It's like, oh, I'm not good enough. I'll oh, wait a couple more months. Ah, oh, no, that person wouldn't want to talk to me. That's a self-rejection, right? Yeah, yeah. I have a friend who talks yeah. a lot about self-limiting beliefs. And sure, yeah. she's very quick to point out like, oh, that's a self-limiting belief. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think as a co-founder, Raul is incredible with this and has definitely helped me a lot in this area. And so I think it's so important to have co-founders who you're always going to have things that your co-founder doesn't have and you're always going to have overlaps like human beings building things it's complicated it's messy but traits like positivity and optimism and just seeing the future as a beautiful place and not like deserted hellhole it's like those are really good qualities of having a co-founder <laughs> because things are not always good you know yeah like i need someone who sees the world like mad max in here by my side <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're, you talked about one of your early employees is like optimistic, high energy problem solver. Like, right. man. Good qualities in an early stage company. I mean, and there's also like the editing process that needs to happen. But I would say that becomes more and more valuable as the company gets bigger. It's like in the beginning, you're going from zero to one. Then you're going from one to like 50, right? Mm-hmm. And then like 50 to 80 and then 80 to 100. When you're a company of... 10 people, nothing needs to be like 100% done. Literally nothing. I mean, other than maybe payroll, right? Like tiny, tiny things like don't get sued. (laughs) Make sure (laughs) somebody paid on time. There's really not that many things that you need to be actually perfect. So if someone's constantly trying to evaluate things for being perfect, they're just going to move a lot slower and the company's going to fail slower and learn slower. Mm -hmm. So that's like, I'd say the biggest thing that I just continue to try to get better at is taking the concept of failure and trying to shift my mindset and think about it more like learning 
And if you can just think about it like learning and just detach the feelings that come along with failure, right? For most people and just think of it like learning, it's a lot more energizing. It's the super valuable trait to have in early team members in a startup. Yeah, absolutely. A critical mindset hack to turn every all your losses into lessons. It's just the next thing. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're almost coming down to the end, but I want to ask for the founders out there, if you're a founder listening, what question would you want answered? And then also you're at this point with Getro and you seem very clear on your mission and like what is important, not only about the company, but like the people that, that you're serving, what's important to them. Mm. What do you want the legacy of Getro to be? Mm. And maybe even of yourself yeah. as an entrepreneur, you know, because it's like you've kind of been chipping yeah. away in the same direction, even if not through the same name or entity. Totally. I mean, yeah, I feel like this has been a, a really long-term vision and a, a long-term idea. I just feel, I think I'm a fairly empathetic person and I feel the pain that other people feel. And so when I see people, when I hear stories of people struggling to find the right opportunities, and I know that those opportunities are one intro away and they just don't know where to find it. And so they're banging their head against the wall. To me, I feel that. And it just feels that inefficiency and the time wasted and the human potential wasted, Mm. it's painful. And so if we can make that even 10% easier or ideally 10 times easier, and everyone is able to find opportunities faster and companies are able to hire faster and meet their missions faster, it's like a crank that just speeds everything up in a really positive way. Yeah. So yeah, I hope we can make a dent on that and just make it easier for people to come into alignment with the way they spend their time professionally. I love that. And there's, it's definitely a multiplier. You know, you introduce the right two people and it's like alchemy. Totally. Yeah. It's like an <laughs> atom bomb of awesomeness. You know, <laughs> like yeah. some people yeah. are just like, you met your co-founder and now look, you've changed the life of how many thousands of, and potentially millions of people. So absolutely. Yeah, it's a huge lever. Right. It's like we know we can't do things by ourselves. That's like logically, of course not. But we don't always know who that person is that can help us get to the next level. So, yeah, I'd like to make that easier. I love it. Is there any question that I should have asked you and didn't? Anything that you wanted (laughs) me to ask? You were just like, oh, is he going to ask me? (laughs) And or any like uh, companies, people you want to shout out, anything that's on the horizon for Getro that, that you'd like to mention? Man. Yeah. I mean, I think, let's see, questions that I wish you asked. I guess there's, for the entrepreneurs out there listening, I think there's a really different journey between a bootstrapped business and a venture-backed business, both in terms of the expectations, the pace, the pain that goes through that. I think there's kind of upsides and downsides to both. I don't know what question I wish you asked, but I think if I was maybe reflecting on my experience... I think when I was bootstrapping the company, I was always kind of like had my eye on fundraising and felt almost like seeing people raise like big funding rounds. I was like, oh man, why can't we do that? And I don't think I realized how much control I had in a way of the business and the direction. There's just like so many possibilities when you have all of your equity and you don't have there are people in the room who have strong opinions. And we've been super lucky with all of our investors who have just been fantastic and very aligned with us. But that's not always the case. And you hear a lot of horror stories there. So I think if you're between having to kind of figure it out, bootstrapping and taking money that feels like there's a little feeling in your stomach that's like, ah, man, something feels off about this. Like 
talk to 10 more people, you know, because that's to me, it's like, and during the process of fundraising, what I've learned, and maybe you could say this about sales and about hiring and everything. It's like, if it's the right person, you don't need to be perfect. You can say things 80% right and 20% wrong. And they're going to fill in the gaps because they're already excited about you. Mm. If it's the wrong person, you could say everything 99% perfect and it's still Mm. not going to work out. Mm. So it's not about being hard on yourself of like, oh shit, I said the wrong thing or I should have been more this or that. It's like, maybe it's just the wrong person and you just got to talk to more people. And I think that can be a really unlocking idea for folks because yeah, there's a lot of people out there and you just got to get yourself in front of the right one. Yeah, no, that's huge of like listening to your gut and avoiding the wrong partnerships. You know, not all money is good money. You don't want everyone's money. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I really appreciate you again for taking the time, Evan. I even soaked up some some gems myself, especially on this hiring funnel thing. Yeah, thanks. And a really inspiring story about the journey that you've been on. Wishing you continued success. And uh, thanks again for coming on the pod. Yeah, thanks, Nigel. Thanks, cheers. Gradients is brought to you by Build Talent. To find out more about us, head to buildtalent.io and make sure to search for The Gradients in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Click follow so you don't miss out on any future episodes. And on behalf of everyone here at Build, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.